If you have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to turn it to 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. That's on page 991. <clears throat> We're taking a one-week uh, one break from our uh, walk through the book of Acts. Uh, we'll be right back to that next week. But I think it's important for us to do that because uh, we want to have the opportunity to talk this morning about motherhood. And uh, if you've been coming to this church for years and years, you know that we, we don't actually uh, regularly do that. I was trying to think when the last time was that we preached a specific Mother's Day sermon. I couldn't remember. I know that I've done it at least twice, um, but we certainly don't do it every year. But it feels important for us to do it today because motherhood in this culture is, uh, has fallen into disrepute. To celebrate mothers today actually is a little bit dangerous. Uh, it is to risk being labeled as sexist. It is to risk being criticized for excluding single people, as if every service and every sermon has to be tailored to our particular life situation. But of course, that's not true. There is tremendous benefit in younger people listening in on a sermon that is directed primarily at older people. Think of the book of uh, or Paul's letter to Titus. There are whole paragraphs there where he's speaking directly to older people. Are younger people to feel excluded? No. And then, and then he'll switch gears and, and say, all right, now I, gotta, I got something for the young folks. And are the older people to feel excluded? No. And, and there are passages in the Bible that speak directly to men. Are women to feel excluded? No. In fact, usually when we preach those sermons, there's a lot of quiet, amen, and listen up. <laughs> right? That's okay. Great, great benefit in us listening to things directed at others because we want to be a community where we understand one another and where we honor each other. And the Bible does say, outdo one another in showing honor. So we're going to honor moms this morning, not because, I want to be clear, not because we think that women only have value if they are parents, and not because Being a mom is the only way to worship God and participate in the Great Commission. Of course not. We're going to honor moms this morning because it's biblical, and we're going to do it because I think it's necessary. Motherhood needs to be honored for the health and flourishing of human beings. Now, before we do this, a couple of disclaimers and qualifications are necessary. First of all, to the single people in the room. We want to acknowledge that the Bible does have an honored category for singles that needs to be said. Jesus, of course, was single. John the Baptist was single. Jeremiah was single. So it is not only possible, it is held up and honored as a, as a way of living a whole, whole, a whole human life and also serving the Lord in spectacular ways. So we want to honor that. To honor mothers is not to dishonor you. Thankfully, honor is not a zero-sum game. And then secondly, to the bereaved among us, to those who have lost children, either in infancy or even in the womb, I want to say this. You are still a mother. You will always be a mother. You will be a mother even in eternity. Charles Spurgeon said, I rejoice to know that the souls of all infants, as soon as they die speed their way to paradise. Think what a multitude there is of them. Christian moms, let me assure you, your little ones are waiting for you on the other side. So we're honoring you as well. And then thirdly, 
to those dear sisters who are eager to be mothers, who want to be mothers, who are trying to be mothers, but for some reason have thus far not been able to be mothers, let me encourage you. It is a noble thing that you seek. And it is very often in the seeking of that thing that faith is forged and refined. We know that as Bible readers, don't we? So we're honoring you as well. With all of that being said, I'd like to read to you now from 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Hopefully you have that open in front of you. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you struggle to say those words this morning in our little liturgy? If you're new to church, uh, that's a little tradition that we have. Usually the, the reader of the, of the scripture for the day will read it, and then at the end we'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds by saying, thanks be to God. It's a way of saying that we're thankful for the word of God, even when it seems to confront or stand against our personal and cultural assumptions, as this passage seems to do. So did those words catch in your mouth a little bit this morning? It wouldn't be surprising if they did. If I were to make a list of the three most despised passages in the year 2023, this would be number one, number two, and probably number three as well. (laughs) We certainly don't like verse nine because it sounds like the Bible is expressing an opinion on how women should dress. And of course, that's a complete no-no in our culture despite that the Bible actually does say a fair bit about modesty and about which of our attributes we should lead with. I'll just put it there and leave it there. And then, of course, we certainly don't like verses 11 to 14 because there it sounds like the Bible is saying that women are going to be excluded from the delivery and discernment of official church doctrine. And then, of course, we really don't like verse 15 because it sounds there like unless a woman is raising children... She isn't doing what God wants her to do. And so, of course, this morning we read all three. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Boom. But actually, the fact that this passage so offends us in our day and age and in our culture probably says a lot more about us than it does about this passage. To get the full picture of what the Bible is saying here, we actually have to zoom out so as to survey the entire story of humanity as presented to us in the Bible. The Apostle Paul roots this teaching in 1 Timothy 2 in his understanding of that narrative. And so most of what he has to say is rooted back in the first two chapters of Genesis, the place where we find God saying things like, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, do you see the word them? It means we're not talking about just Adam, we're talking about Adam and Eve. The word Adam in Hebrew refers to humanity as a whole and also to a specific individual. And so this helps us know what we're talking about here. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens 
and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So in that passage, we see that both male and female, both men and women, were created in the image and likeness of God. They are therefore creatures of enormous dignity and worth. They are God-like. They represent God, and they resemble God in a way that no other creature in the universe does. Now, that's not just something the Bible says about men. It is something the Bible says about men and women, male and female. That phrase, image and likeness, is massively significant. Of course, I I trust you remember that the first people to hear these words, right? The very first people to hear Genesis 1, 26 and 27 read aloud would have been recently liberated Hebrew slaves camping around Mount Sinai, right? Meaning they had just come out of the Egyptian culture. They had lived as Egyptians for 400 years, meaning they had been Egyptians for longer than we've been Canadians, since we're talking about cultural context here. In the Egyptian cultural context, only one person was referred to as image and likeness of God, the Pharaoh. Most of us, uh, well, I suppose most people my age remember the National Geographic thing on uh, King Tut. Remember his, uh, King Tut, and they discovered all his riches and whatnot and his burial place. His full name is Tutankhamun, which means in the image and likeness of the god Amun. So the Egyptians believed that the pharaohs were image and likeness. They were God's royal representatives on the earth. Those words in Hebrew, tselem and demuth, were originally words you used to praise the Pharaoh. And now here at Mount Sinai, these recently liberated Hebrew slaves are hearing that actually every single man and woman is tselem and demuth, image and likeness. They are sons and daughters of God. So, to be clear, the the Bible does not demean women. If anything, the Bible runs the risk of deifying women. It it comes within a, a breath, a hair of blasphemy in saying that women, like men, are image and likeness of God. And they're rulers. God said, let us make man in our image, male and female, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Well, of course, as Canadians... We know what the word dominion means, don't we? It means reign or rule. So according to the Bible, both men and women are reigning and ruling creatures. But ruling is a much bigger thing than most people today seem to realize. In the church today, because we have been so influenced by the culture, we tend to think that rulership is all about power position and platform. So in the church, we tend to think it's about who gets to stand up here, when in fact it's about so much more than that. Take a a look at what the Bible says immediately after what we just read about God making the male and female in his image and likeness. It says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So chapter 1 in the How to Exercise Dominion playbook is have and raise lots of babies. How about that? Funny thing is, I mentioned that this would be, you know, number one, two, and three on the most offensive 
verses in the Bible or chapters in the Bible in the year 2023, the thing that you should know, young people, talk to some older people in the room, that has only recently been the case. I imagine that 90 years ago they read this passage and went, you know, what, what time are we done here? Right? Like this was, this was not controversial or offensive for most of human history. We used to say the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Do you remember that? We used to believe that mothering, parenting is an act of dominion. It is, in fact, the first act of dominion. It is leadership. In a Christian context, we would say it is disciple-making. And Pastor Rob reminded us of the Great Commission, the mission of the church. Do you remember it? Jesus said, go and make disciples. So let me ask you a question. Are women in ministry? The answer is, of course they are. They are maximally engaged in ministry. The problem is that we have developed too narrow a definition of ministry. What the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 reflects a biblical mindset. Paul understands men and women as image and likeness of God. They are creatures of enormous dignity and worth. They are equal, but also different, and have been assigned front seat in each of the two main tasks associated with exercising dominion. Exercising dominion to a Bible reader means stewarding the Word of God and raising up little babies. So we've got two aspects. We've got two individuals, each person assigned priority responsibility in one task. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12, that a woman should remain silent during the teaching time in the worship service. The word that he uses there is the word hesukia, which literally means to step back or to stand down. He's not saying that women should be absolutely silent in church. Uh, In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, he assumes that they are both praying and prophesying. So what he does seem to be saying is that when it is time in the service for the official doctrine of the church to be delivered, for the elder-sanctioned teaching time, when it's time for that to happen, the women should stand down. It's time for the men in the church to step up and do the task that was assigned to them. And the reason that this passage is so offensive to people in our culture today is that we have bought into the lie that we are only equal when we are the same and women only have worth when they excel at things traditionally done by men. That's a lie. And Paul is saying that women will be saved from that lie and from the harm and destruction that that lie leads to when they embrace in faith the dignity, identity, and calling that was uniquely assigned to them by the Creator. He's saying to women in the church, women who have been reconciled to their Creator through faith in Jesus Christ, you have value and worth as women. What you are doing is important. What you are doing is primary. What you are doing is the mission. And our job as men, our job as elders, my job as a board-appointed, board-supervised preacher is just to put the tools in your hand so that you can do the thing that is most primary. You are the artisan. You are the hero. You are the frontline worker. You are the molder and shaper of human beings. Sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, embrace that calling. Celebrate that calling retrieve in your generation that calling. 
I wasn't planning on preaching this sermon. Uh, it's kind of made a mess of our preaching calendar. Pastor Rob had already planned an excellent service built around Acts 12, 20 to 25. We'll get that next Sunday. Uh, I'm actually really excited about that. That's going to be a good passage. But on Tuesday morning, I just felt the Lord laid it on my heart to do this. Uh, in part, because I believe that motherhood has never been less valued and less esteemed probably anywhere in the world than it is right now, right here. And the consequences, if we carry on this way, are hard to exaggerate. Gene Twenge, a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, who tracks changes in behavior and attitudes across generations, not, not a Christian, by the way, just an observer of social trends, says this, by 2020, the birth rate for both teens and for women in their early 20s was the lowest it had ever been since records were first kept in 1918. Meaning, we only have, of all the records that we have, the birth rate right now is the lowest it's ever been. About half of what it was in 1990. Gen Z is marrying and having children later than any previous generation in American history. Far from resembling the silent generation, which would be my parents' generation, they have followed the slower strategy of taking their time to grow to adulthood, and it seems likely more will not marry or have children at all. The decline in the fertility rate looks like the drop on a roller coaster at Canada's Wonderland. I think you have that slide behind us. We're facing an existential crisis as a culture. What happens to human beings when motherhood is no longer honored? There are only a few options, and none of them are good. And so there's an urgent need, a desperate need, to retrieve and rehabilitate the honor and dignity of this calling. Motherhood matters. Can you say amen to that? And in the time we have left, I want to talk about why that is. Motherhood matters, first of all, because this is who we are. Now, I've used the first person plural. I've said we. This is who we are. Even though I'm not a mother, probably more than half the people in the room are are not a mother. We are not all mothers. But nevertheless, I am saying that motherhood is essential to who we are as human beings. The Christian ethicist Oliver O'Donovan puts it this way. He says, it is because we stand over against one another as men and women, as equal but complementary members of one human race, that we can, as a race, be fruitful. To this given connection in our nature between male-female relationship and procreation, it is possible to respond in only two ways. We can welcome it, or we may resent it. Let me repeat that last line. We can welcome it, or we can resent it. Might I suggest that this is the challenge for people of faith, and I'll say even more specifically for women of faith in our day and age. And this is exactly, exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2.15. To resent motherhood, to hate our bodies, to have our breasts surgically removed, which young girls in this culture are doing at an astonishing rate, is to reject our humanity. It is to say that we are not image bearers. We will not be under God and over everything else. We will be gods unto ourselves, deciding right and wrong by ourselves and ultimately for ourselves. That is the very essence of idolatry. It is to make a god of the self. 
It is to reject who we are and whose we are, and therefore to re-embrace motherhood, to revalue procreation, and to re-esteem child nurturing as a calling is an act of repentance. If it is done knowingly, willingly, and intentionally, it is nothing less than an act of faith. Now, hearing that, processing all of that, hear again what Paul actually says in 1 Timothy 2.15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What could he possibly mean here? He means that for many women recognizing this reality, and if they are called embracing this reality will be for them nothing less than the gateway to living faith. And what else could he mean there? It's, you know, having come out of the denominational context that we came out of and then just spending time in the wider world and and talking to folks who are trying to figure out Christianity, and always there's a couple of gaps, right? But the big gap right now when you're talking to folks about Christianity, the big gap is what we believe about sexuality and gender. You, you, good luck trying to evangelize friends and neighbors if you're not prepared to speak about what the Bible actually believes about, about that, because they will ask. This is the big fence they need to get over before they're willing to talk about Jesus. But even in the Christian world, under pressure from the culture, we've begun to be confused, or I wonder sometimes if we're just pretending to be confused. I've been in many conversations, like I said, in our previous denominational context, with Christian leaders who will say, you know, ah, this verse is obscure. It's extremely confusing. Who, who even knows? I mean, who even knows what it means? So let's just stick to what we know for sure, which is that God loves us. Jesus is wonderful. Follow him. That's a cop-out. And I'll be honest with you, it's dishonest. Is this verse really all that confusing? What in the world? What else could it possibly mean? Now, I suppose grammatically, you could try to argue that, that, that crassly and ridiculously, Paul is saying that a woman will be saved by the mere act of having a child. But that would be to contradict pretty much everything else the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So it is impossible for the same person who says that to now say there is a physical thing you could do that would earn you salvation. My goodness, if Paul means that in 1 Timothy 2, you should throw your entire Bible in the garbage because it's nothing other than a mess of contradiction. He does not mean that. So what does he mean? What he seems to be saying is that women will be saved by embracing who they are as human beings. They will be saved by bowing to God's authority even over their own bodies. They will be saved by saying a hard-fought but heartfelt amen to the goodness and wisdom of his design. He's saying that by embracing the call to motherhood, women will be saved from the lie that they must be like men in order to have value and dignity. He is saying that women will be saved if by grace through faith they are reconciled to God and to themselves, which, by the way, is what salvation means, no matter who we're talking about. Of course, this is how faith works. Faith is often found, forged, and refined in difficult decisions. 
We think of Abraham wrestling with the agony of the call to sacrifice his own son on the altar. We think of Rahab making the dangerous decision to side with the people of God and hiding the spies. Faith is forged in the crisis of decision. And in our culture, no decision for women will be more difficult than this. God bless you. So, motherhood is important because it is connected to our identity, purpose, and calling as human beings. Whether you are personally a mother or not, honoring the institution of motherhood matters. Honoring the function of motherhood matters. Honoring the calling matters. It is part of who we are. And then secondly, I would argue that motherhood matters and will matter even more in the years and decades to come because it is an important part of how we witness to the world. Friends, do you want to stand out? Do you want to shine for Jesus in this fading and failing world? Then have, raise, cherish, and celebrate babies. Listen again to what your friends value. Twenge says this, when younger adults who don't want children are asked why, the majority in national polls name not financial issues or climate change, but reasons centered on individualism, such as the desire for more leisure time, wanting more personal independence, and the choice-based, matter of fact, I just don't want them. Younger sisters, this is what your peer group values. This is what our culture values. Leisure time, personal independence, choice, self. And motherhood stands in opposition to all of those things. Motherhood is the very opposite of individualism. What is a mom? Do you know what a mom is? A mom is the least self-centered creature in all the universe. A mom is someone who gets up four times during the night to nurse a hungry baby. A mom is someone who skips meals and who wears clothes that are years out of date because she's saving her money in a jar so that one day she can take the kids to Disney World. A mom is someone who can never be happier than her saddest child. A mom is someone who lives and dies with every report card, every soccer game, every first kiss, every breakup, every milestone, every decision. That's a mom. A mom is the very opposite of individualism, and individualism is the god of our culture. So do you want to get noticed, sisters? Do you want to stand out for Jesus? And be a mother. Nothing in this culture in the years and decades ahead is going to be more visible than a mom with kids particularly a mom with five kids. I, uh, I think I've told this story before. Uh, about 10 years ago, we went on family vacation. This was just when my wife was pregnant with our youngest daughter, Noah. So we had our four kids with us, plus we took Ainsley Robertson, now Ainsley Hogeveen, with us because she was Madison, our oldest daughter's uh, friend. And so we had the five children plus a bun in the oven, as the kids say. I don't know if the kids say that. You should say it. Bring it back. Anywho... Uh, we were walking into a restaurant, and I, I was holding the door for my, my wife and the kids. And for whatever reason, the kids had lined up in front of my wife in order from to, uh, shortest to tallest. So we had Peyton, and then and uh, all the way up to Madison, and Ainsley Robertson wedged somewhere in between. And, and uh, as they all went in, and I was holding the door, I then went in, and another lady was coming out, and we were close enough just to hear her whisper to her husband, Oh, my goodness, and she's pregnant again. <laughs> Moms are going to get noticed. 
in this culture. So if you want to shine your light for Jesus, younger sisters in the Lord, then have, raise, nurture, and value babies. And when your neighbors ask you, what in the world is going on? You say, I'm an image bearer. I'm a leader. I'm a disciple maker. I'm exercising dominion. I'm actually building an eternal kingdom, one human being at a time. What are you doing? (laughs) And you know what? Maybe that starts a conversation because as folks around us get older and lonelier and their world crumbles and dies, maybe they'll want to talk to you about who you are and what you believe and how you put your life together. Get ready for that conversation, my friends, because that day is coming. This is who we are. This is how we witness, and this is how we win. I know that we do win, of course, and I hope you do too, because Jesus said that we would. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we win. We win. Jesus is going to build his church. Like the mustard seed. It's going to grow and grow and grow until it completely fills and dominates the garden. That will happen. Friends, the future belongs to people who are having and raising babies. That seems pretty straightforward to me. One last quote from Twenge in her book, Generations. She says, having a baby is an optimistic act. It means you're optimistic about your ability to take care of the child and at least reasonably optimistic about the world the child will inhabit. Having a baby is an act of hope. It's an act of faith, not just in God, but also in us. It's, in essence, an expression of your belief that God is good, and by His grace, we can be saved, transformed, and changed such that we can be good, and that by extension, even the world can be good. Despair is self defeating. Unfaith is unfertile. Those who believe that God is good, that by His grace there is a good world coming, have babies. And thus, through the preaching of the gospel and through the raising of little boys and girls who love Jesus, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That's the plan. And both parts of that plan matter. And Paul addresses them both just a little later on in the same letter to Timothy. He speaks to Timothy, a young man, and says something very similar to him as to what he said to the young women in 1 Timothy 2.15. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And you say, wait a second. Is Paul preaching like a works-based salvation there? If he's saying to Timothy, if you are a good steward of the Christian doctrine, that that will be salvation for you? That the merit of that will warrant salvation? Is he saying that? No, of course not. No more than he was saying that women can be saved by the mere act of having a baby. What he is saying is that if Timothy embraces his part of the mandate, and if the young women embrace their part of the mandate in faith, then we will save ourselves and our Hears. What he's saying is that a community that believes in the power of the Word of God preached and that cherishes, nurtures, and raises little image bearers who love and worship their Creator is going to have life. They're going to grow. They're going to expand. They're going to increase. And in the end, 
they're going to win. That's the game plan, friends. That's the future. And whether the culture likes it or not, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the goodness and wisdom of your design. How we thank you that you made us male and female. How we thank you that we are equal but different. Lord, I don't know why the idea of equal but different has fallen into disfavor. Lord, I don't want to be equal and same. Equal and different is good. Equal and different leads to life. Equal and different has a future. So we thank you for the goodness of your design. We thank you for the wisdom of your ways. By your spirit, tune and accommodate our hearts to the beauty of these truths. Lord, may this place be a place where the word of God is carefully stewarded and where children are loved, celebrated, welcomed, nurtured, and made into disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his precious name. Amen.